we're in Second uh, Peter, so you can turn in your Bibles. Second Peter, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one there somewhere around you, um, on the chair in front of you, under the seat there. The children are be coming back up for our worship time at the end, so they can see the baptism at well as well. So, but we've been uh, we started through the the book of First Peter a couple weeks ago, and just. Uh, just a way of review, I just want to read the opening verses so that we're all on the same page together, and uh, I'll just be reading uh, the first uh, 11 verses, and we're just looking at the, the second verse today. But the Word of God, uh, Peter writes here, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we looked in previous uh, weeks uh, as far as introducing this little letter. We know that it was written by Peter. We know that he was in prison and... um, 1 Peter, just to remind you, was written to help suffering Christians, those Christians who were uh, sent out all over the place in the, in the uh, dysphoria over that, those different countries that is mentioned in 1 Peter there, verse 1. And he's writing to the same audience here, but he's not writing to help suffering Christians. He's writing this letter for the express purpose of exposing false teachers. Exposing false teachers is the purpose of this letter. And uh, he wanted to combat those teachers who were kind of gaining some footage in the New Testament church. And uh, they began to teach strange doctrines. They began to teach all sorts of weird things. And Peter was writing these group of Christians to make sure that they understood that they could have a defense against these kind of teachings. And uh, he makes his opinions very clear. He calls them basically as useless, false teachers that is, as useless as dried up springs of water, and he compares their teaching to a dog returning to his vomit. So he's very graphic in the way he, he shares his passion about false teachers. 
And the letter basically had three primary purposes. First of all, as we said, to alert the danger of these uh, false teachers. Also to remind the leaders that their personal, uh, the Christians, that their personal faith should not remain static. That personal faith in Christ isn't something you do when you're two, raise your hand in a Sunday school class, and then live like you want the rest of your life. That's not true saving faith. There's a lot of people in the church today that are holding on to an experience that they had in their Christian journey, and they're thinking somehow that experience saved them. I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I raised a hand. Now, make no doubt about it. Some people are saved that way. But you can always tell people that hold on to those certain events in life. And you ask them, well, are you a Christian? And they'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I prayed when I was in Sunday school, when I was in third grade. And you ask them, well, what's God done for you lately? Where is Christ in your life now? I don't go to church anymore, but, you know, I know I'm a Christian. That's not true saving faith. So Peter writes this letter, and he wants to encourage them, these Christians, that, you know what, if you have true saving faith, it's not going to remain static. You're going to see it growing. That's why he says in verse 8, these qualities are yours and are increasing. There's no plateauing in the Christian walk. You're to ever be growing more and more and more like the Savior each and every day. Well, the third reason he wrote this, this little book was to encourage the believers in their faith and in the fact and the expectation of the Lord's coming. And that's something that some of us have forgotten as believers, that one day Christ will return for his church. I mean, that's going to be a glorious day. That was a good place to say amen, okay? Um, that, that's what that's about. I mean, you should be encouraged that Christ promised to return, and he is returning. Amen. And some, some believers, you know, you wonder if they're, they're just hoping that Jesus won't return next because they've got to, you know, make that next promotion in their job, or they've got to buy that next car or the next house or, or whatever. You know, beloved, trust me, this world is passing away as we know it. One day it will be burned up. It will be judged. These things are not going to last. And Peter wants them to understand in no uncertain terms, don't put your faith and trust in items, material things. Put your faith and trust in someone and something that will never pass away. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So false teachers were already at work in this church, just like they're at work in our uh, days that we live in today. But Peter really wrote this, this letter to help them understand those couple things that we mentioned. Now, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. So we know that this is the same group of people that he is writing to in 1 Peter. It's a group of Christians, and they're spread out all over the place. It's not a church. It's just a general letter, a general epistle. And last week, we looked at one of the first points in our outline was that as believers, he wants them to understand in order to combat a lot of the false teaching that's going on, you have to understand a couple things. And we, we first of all, zeroed in on that word knowledge throughout the book. It's mentioned several times throughout the book. And, and Peter really puts a, a high value on having the proper knowledge in your Christian walk. And so we talked about last week knowing your salvation. Knowing what makes up your salvation, knowing the source we spoke particularly about, your salvation. And we saw there in verse 1, it says, To those who have obtained a faith, obtained a faith. 
This isn't something that they earned. This is something that was given to them. It was a gift. You know, you can't have a faith that saves you that's not given to you by God. A lot of people have different kinds of faith. There's a lot of people, though. Do you believe in God? Oh, sure. Yeah, I have faith in God. But it's not saving faith. It's just a general faith. It's a faith that says, yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, he's out there somewhere. But they have no desire to know him. They have no desire to read his word. They have no desire to fellowship with the the people of God. And so you wonder, does that kind of faith save them? And the answer simply is no, it doesn't. The only kind of faith that will save you from the wretchedness of your sin and the pending judgment upon your soul is the faith that's granted to you by God and God alone. That's so important to understand. That it's a faith that comes from him. It doesn't come by going to church. You don't gain that kind of faith by just coming to church. Now, coming to church is good. But it doesn't make you a Christian. Getting baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Praying doesn't make you a Christian. Giving to the poor, feeding the poor, doing all these good things. It doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't... Make your faith valid. The only thing that can make your faith valid is when it comes from that source of God. God initiates faith when the Holy Spirit awakens that dead soul in response to hearing the word of God. That's why it's so important, we believe in our church, that we teach the Bible, that we teach from God's word. Because we believe that within the word of God, there's power to save the human heart. We don't have any power to save anybody. Our church has no power to save anybody. But it's only through the teaching and the preaching of the word of God that that power will come and will activate those hearts and those souls that need to be saved. Now, he also said here, we looked at this last week, It said they obtained this gift of faith of equal standing. In other words, you know what? We're all in the same predicament. We all have the same issue and we all need the same fix. There's not somebody in here that needs more saved than somebody else. But that's what we do in life, don't we? Boy, we look at this, these brothers who took out all these people in the bombing and then the subsequent shooting and just the mayhem they created. and, And we look at them and say, well, yeah, they need God. They need to get saved. Look at what they're doing. Look at their lives. Or we look at the mass murderer already in prison and we say, well, yeah, they need God. But when it comes to us, we kind of have a self-inflated view of ourselves. We think somehow that, that God looks on favor on our lives because maybe we do certain things or we live a clean life or, you know, we've been married for 40 years to the same person and we've been faithful. And somehow we think that earns us brownie points with God. That's not what the scriptures teach, beloved. Those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But when you have obtained a faith of equal standing, in other words, we're all in the same lot, the Bible says over and over again, especially in Romans, that all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That doesn't say everybody but, you know, the preacher or everybody but the pope or everybody but the elder. No, it says everybody. 
See, that's why you have to understand we're all in this together. People that stand up in front of teach, teach in front of people are no more holy than anybody else. We have to get that out of our mind. We're all fallen. We're all in desperate need of God's grace. We need his salvation. And we can only get it not by coming to church, not by praying, not by giving to the poor, not by doing all these things. The only way we can get it is when we go to God and we say, God, I have nowhere else to go. You and you alone can save me. And I cry out and I beg you, I plead with you to save my wretched heart. See, that's the kind of prayer God will hear. Not, hey, God, I understand you have a happy plan for my life, you know, and if I follow Jesus, boy, everything's going to just be great. A lot of people don't understand that when people were following Jesus in the New Testament, he didn't promise them a happy life. He promised them just the opposite. He promised them pain. He promised them suffering. He promised them persecution. So much so that some of his disciples who were following him actually stopped. They looked at the cost and they said, no way. You look in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's nine, chapter 9, there's certain individuals that follow Jesus and Jesus first guy kind of wants to follow him and thinks maybe he's staying in the, you know, Jerusalem Hilton or something. Hey, I'll follow you, Jesus. Where are you going to stay tonight? Got all these people following you? Surely you're going to be staying in a nice place. Turns to him, he says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Nowhere. You know, the other person wants to follow him, but let me go first bury my my father, who wasn't even dead yet, if you understand the context of what he was saying, he was saying, hey, wait till my dad dies and I'm going to get a big inheritance and then I'll follow you and then we'll see what we can really do. And Jesus says, I don't have time for that. Let the dead bury the dead. Well, can I go say goodbye to my family first before I follow you? Jesus said, no. <laughs> we don't hear that very much today in the gospel message. Matter of fact, we hear just the opposite, it seems. We hear a message of felt needs. Jesus will do this for you. Jesus will do that for you. We live in a, a day and age where the whole mentality of, of positive confession, well, just, just your words have meaning. And you know what? If you just speak money into that wallet, boy, it'd appear. That's crazy. That's crazy theology. And these people don't have small churches, beloved. One individual over in Korea, huge church. But when I look at his theology, it's definitely certain that he's into Eastern mysticism, not Christianity. Talks about visualizing things and all sorts of weird things. Yet he has a big following, even among the evangelical church he has a following. Why? Because they're looking at the results. One of the biggest churches in the world. And they're going, well, there must be something to this. Look at his church. That doesn't mean anything. You have to be careful today even. 
Just because someone says they're a Christian or someone names the name of Christ, look at their life. Look at what they're really teaching. Look at what they're, they're really holding on to. You know, is it just a big miracle show? A lot of churches today, it's all about the miraculous. You know, and, and the modern-day charismatic movement, unfortunately, has been very successful of replacing the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God with the miraculous. What do I mean? In a lot of churches, you go in, you don't hear somebody teach for 40, 50, 60 minutes. No, maybe they'll, they'll share 30 minutes, but then they have a big sideshow of all the miracles and all this stuff that's supposed to be going on. Now, that doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor the, the body of Christ. That's not what we're here to see on Sunday morning is a bunch of miracles. The greatest miracle that can ever happen today, I think, is God and Christ stepping into the human heart and transforming it and giving it life. That's truly miraculous. I don't have to wait for all these other things to happen. When you're given the truth of the word of God and you're taught the word of God, that profits you a lot more than any miracle will. The purpose of miracles, beloved, in the New Testament was not to save people. That's not the the, the purpose. They never saved anybody. Saving faith does not come from miracles. If you look at Romans... Romans chapter 10. I just want to read this scripture for you real quick because it kind of summarizes. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, So faith comes from miracles? Is that what it says? No? It says, so faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing what? The next part of the verse says, hearing the words of Christ. Hearing the words of Christ. Got all these people running around today calling themselves a prophet and everything else. I think they forget that the greatest prophet that ever lived, John the Baptist, never did one miracle. New Testament tells us that. Never performed one miracle, one sign. And yet he was called the greatest, one of the greatest prophets. So Peter is really writing this letter to help us understand that, you know what, whether you live back then or whether you live in the day and age we live in today, we need to have a proper defense against a lot of this false teaching and heresy that's going on within the church. And so he wants us, first of all, to know our salvation know the source of it in Romans 3:26 it says for the demonstration i say of his grace at the present of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in miracles no in jesus see when one puts their faith their trust in jesus christ as lord and savior god gives them faith 
God justifies them. That's what allows you to believe. Even your belief is a gift from God. Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies or makes righteous the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. What's that verse saying? That verse is saying it's better to to stop and have faith in God, a God-given faith, rather than go out and, and try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work for the rest of your life to save yourself. That's not going to work. Because the source of our salvation, as we saw last week, is from God and God alone, by his grace alone. Well, today I just quickly want to look at faith's substance. Faith's substance. Look at verse 2. It says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you, 1 Peter 1, verse 2, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, this is very familiar greeting in the New Testament. You can see this greeting all over the place. It's always grace and peace. The Apostle Paul taught the Christians in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1 there, we have been justified by faith, and because of that, we have peace with God. 1 Corinthians 1, 3 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 2 Corinthians 1, 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Galatians 1, 3 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God wants the substance of salvation, that grace and peace. He wants you to have that. So I want to look at what these two substances are. What's grace and what's peace? So we'll take a couple minutes here and just go through this outline. Grace basically is the word charis in the the Greek. It means God's free, unmerited favor towards sinners which grants those who believe the gospel complete forgiveness forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what grace is. It's a gift. It's something that God gives you. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his what? Of his grace. Or even over in Titus chapter 3, verse 7, it says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, it's, it's very important for us to understand, beloved, that when we speak of God's grace, this is something that purely, wholly comes from him. That's why it's called grace, unmerited favor. God giving us something that we by no means deserve. In John chapter 1, verse 16... It says, for from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. What an incredible thing, grace upon grace. That's how much grace God has to offer you. It's not just a little drop of grace. It's not a bucket of grace. It's grace upon grace. That means he's got more grace than you'll ever, ever, ever need. It's a boundless flow of divine favor coming from God to you. And when we as believers receive that surpassing grace, it covers every sin. Every sin. A couple verses. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's God's grace. Even over in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I mean, don't you want the favor of God upon your life? Don't you want God, God's grace upon you? His unmerited favor? I mean, think if after the service someone walked up to you and said, Hey, here's 500 bucks. For me? Yeah, yeah, just take 500 bucks. Well, what's it for? Yeah, just take it. I'm just giving it to you. You're just giving it to me? Come on, what's the, is there a catch or something? No, I just want you to have it. Come on, just take it. See, we, we don't understand the concept of somebody just giving us something with no strings attached. And so when it comes to God's grace, sometimes we, we kind of balk. We say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> this, this doesn't make any sense. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know, there's one thing about doing good works. That's one aspect of the Christian life. But it means something totally different to abound in every good work. Sometimes we do good works and you know what? The good works we're doing seem to do a work on us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You just get tired. You get tired of doing good works. It's like, I'm not going to help that person again. They don't appreciate it. Well, God's not that way. He wants us to have all of his grace. He wants it to abound to us so that we can be sufficient in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be sufficient in your occupation, in your job, whatever it might be, in all things at all times? God wants us to be sufficient in our faith. He wants us to understand that this faith comes by His grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul writes this, but he said to me, my grace and we've all heard this verse probably multiple times. My grace is what? Sufficient for you. <coughs> for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. God's given you all the grace you're ever going to need. It's sufficient grace. Well, you don't know my situation. I don't care about your situation. It's irrelevant. The idea that God doesn't know your situation is silly to think. He knows everything. 
He knows what you're going through. He knows the pain in your heart right now. He knows the suffering. He knows maybe the pain that's wreaking your body right now. He knows all those things. And yet he says right here, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. He said that to the Apostle Paul that I guarantee you probably went through a lot more than you've ever even thought of going through. But he also says, my power is made perfect in weakness. God doesn't want a bunch of Christians who are out there doing their own thing, thinking that somehow they can save themselves by all the good works and and just doing whatever they want and not relying on God to lead them and guide them and show them the next step. That doesn't please God. He wants his people to be day by day. Lord, show me today what you want me to do. I want to be dependent upon you. I want to make sure that my, my faith is growing, that it's ever increasing. That it's not a static faith. It's not a stale faith that's you know, been around for 30 years, but I haven't seen you work in my life since I raised that hand or walked that aisle or whatever. If that's the kind of faith you have, maybe you need to stop and examine it, re-examine it. We're told to do that in the Bible. Make sure that you are in the faith. And Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. That's an odd concept today. How many times do you hear people boasting about their weaknesses today? You don't hear that. That's one of the questions they ask you usually in an interview. What's your greatest weakness? And depending on how you answer that question, that tells a lot about you. And I guarantee you, the person that says, I I don't have any weaknesses, (laughs) doesn't do very very well in that interview because they're lying through their teeth. But he says he's going to boast all the more gladly in his weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the weaker we are, the stronger God is. That's how this works. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence, all right, draw near the throne of what? Grace. The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace. To help in time of need. See, God's grace is there. It's there in abundant measure. He has more grace than you could ever dream of needing. And yet so many times, we refuse it. Be silly for someone to try to give you $500. Well, I'm not going to take it. No, I don't want it. That wouldn't be very wise. God wants you to experience his grace. He's done everything possible through the cross, through the the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the resurrection, taking care of everything. He simply wants your heart to come to him and say, you know what, I need it. I need to be saved. We were over in the, in Israel, when we went to the Dead Sea, I went out in the Dead Sea, and you can actually just, you start to walk out there and you start to float because there's so much salt. I'm sure some of you have been over there. It's amazing. But what was very interesting, I was talking to a gentleman out there, and he said, yeah, he goes, they, they, they tell you not to lay on your, 
your stomach. Don't float on your stomach. I'm like, why? They go, a lot of people drown that way. Because they're floating so much, they, can't, they, they just can't flip themselves over, and they end up drowning. They said, if you're going to float, float on your back so your, your, your head's out of the water. Really, really weird. And he said, yeah, they don't even really even know that they're drowning until it's too late. See, God is there with his grace, with his mercy, in time of need to help us. But he definitely needs us to kind of say, yeah, I need that kind of help. Thank you very much. Well, that's the first thing he talks about is grace. And he always talks about grace in reference to peace. And grace always precedes peace if you look throughout the scripture. Always. Because you can't understand peace until you've experienced the grace of God. Very simply put. The second word, peace, it has the idea of being at peace, harmony, freedom from disputes, absent of war. comes by God's grace. Ephesians 2, verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, speaking of Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Christ is our peace. Colossians 1.20, it says, And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Peace is something that God wants us to have. It flows out of the forgiveness of God that he gives to those who put their faith or trust in him. Even in Psalm 85, verse 8, it says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. To his saints. Isaiah 26, 12 says, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. God wants you to experience grace, but he also wants you to experience his peace, beloved. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. May the Lord be with you all. God doesn't want you to live your Christian life worrying and fretting and wringing your hands and trying to, you know, figure out all this stuff that you can't figure out. That's not what God wants you to do. God wants you to experience his peace. He gives us abundant peace for every trial that we may see ourselves going through. Over in John chapter 14, verse 27 Jesus said this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. If there was anyone who ever experienced peace, it was Jesus. He was God. Not as the world gives do I give you, he says in verse 27. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Are you fearful today? Are you, are you troubled about something? God wants you to have peace. God wants you to have complete confidence through his grace. Even over in John chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, he says. And he qualifies it. He says, you know what? In the world you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble down there on earth. It's not going to be an easy 
task for you to live as a Christian in this sin-stained world. But take heart, he says in verse 33, I've overcome the world. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, hey, I, I, you know, I'm already at the end and I won. I've already defeated sin and death. It's good to be on my team because if you're on my team, you're on a winning team. Who wants to be on a losing team? I mean, that's kind of silly, isn't it? You don't want to be on a losing team, especially when you're talking about all eternity. You want to be on a winning team. And Jesus says that in me, you will have that peace when you experience it through my grace. Well, how do you get this grace? How do you get this peace? I want to say very clearly that this grace and this peace is, they're only available, this is only available to those who know and wholeheartedly embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can have these, these items in your life. But he does tell us how we can have it. It's not available to those who do not know and wholeheartedly embrace Christ. It comes through not experience. It doesn't come through working. It doesn't come through anything like that. It comes through one thing. It comes through knowledge. That's what he says there in Second Peter. He says, May grace and peace be multi- multiplied to you in what? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior. That word knowledge is a common word for knowledge, gnosis, epinosis in this, in this circumstance. It, it speaks of a, of a kind of a, a strengthened idea of knowledge, of just, it's not just general knowledge, it has the idea of a rich knowledge, a degree of intimacy involved in this kind of a knowledge. It's not just, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know Barack Obama. I know who he is. No, but do you know him? When's the last time you had dinner with him? Well, I don't know him that way. Well, this is the kind of knowledge we're talking about here. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? What comes through the law? Knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. See, that's why it's so important that when we come across an unbeliever, when we come across someone who hasn't trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't know the way of salvation, it's not always good to start the conversation, you know. Do you know that God has a wonderful plan for your life? That's kind of a weak start right out of the gate, to be in all honesty. I mean, you know, a better start would be do you understand that you're in sin and your, your life is under judgment from God? Would you like to remedy that? And most people, that's the problem. They don't think they're under sin. They don't think they're under judgment from God. They don't think that they sin. Well, I'm not as bad as the guy across the street. That's not the question. The question is, are you holy? Are you perfect? Are you sinless in any way? Have you never done anything in your entire life that has been Wrong before a holy God? I would 
challenge if you would say yes, because I think there's only one person that's ever done that, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he lived here in his incarnate body for 30-some years before he gave up his perfect sacrifice, the Bible says, so he was sinless, yet he took on the sin of all of us and paid for that sin through his sacrifice. But it's through the law that we have the knowledge of sin. When people don't realize they sin, you take them to God's law and you ask them, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I've told a lie. Well, God calls that a sin. Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value from somebody else? Well, maybe when I was little, well, that's, you're a thief. You've stolen something. Have you ever thought of something in your mind, lustful thought, whatever, that's, that's dishonoring? Well, God calls those lustful thoughts adultery of the heart. So, I mean, when you start going through God's law, none of us really can stand up and say, oh, yeah, I keep that commandment, no problem, that one, no problem. No. What happens? When you're confronted with the law of God, what happens? It begins to convict you in your soul. That's why so many people don't want to deal with the God of the Bible. They want to create God in their own image. Well, my God wouldn't judge me. My God wouldn't send me to hell. My God wouldn't do this. My God wouldn't be, my God wouldn't be so narrow-minded. I'm not really concerned about what your God is, in all honesty. I'm concerned about what the God of the Bible has revealed through the Scripture is. Once we get to understand who he is, then we can understand the predicament we're in with all the sin, and then he has provided a way out. Romans 10.2 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. See, the substance of one's knowledge is a kind of rational, objective knowledge that comes to us through his word. It's not some experiential, you know, inner feeling that you have or, or some kind of a weird experience. That's not the knowledge we're talking about. We're talking about knowing his word. God has revealed to us the very, on the very pages of scripture his truth. And when it was all revealed, he closed the canon and he said, here, this is good to go. You can take this Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. And you know what? Memorize it, read it internalize it, do whatever you want with it, but it's important that you make this a priority in your life because this is going to get you through the hard times because it's my truth that I've revealed to you. God wants us to know him. And it's interesting, so much so, he says, may grace and peace be what? Multiplied to you. Multiplied to you. See, knowledge that brings salvation so that you can experience this kind of grace, this kind of peace, doesn't come from feelings, it doesn't come from intuition, it doesn't come from emotion or personal experience. It only comes through the revealed truth based on the gospel of Christ preached from the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How will they hear without a what? Experience? No. How will they hear without a preacher? It's important to come under the preaching, the teaching of God's word. Salvation requires a genuine knowledge of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's so important that we get this. 
and get it straight. Quick verse over in Philippians 3.10, Paul says this, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Well, he wants not us just to have these things, but he says he wants them to be multiplied to you. He wants them to be made full. He wants them to, cause, to, to be caused to increase in your life, to grow. And if you doubt that, just look at the last verse of 2 Peter 3.18. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He wants us to grow in this kind of grace and peace. We don't plateau in our Christian life. I think it's important that we realize that all of this, all of this is available to us, but it's only available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the salvation that he's provided. And so my question to you today is, have you experienced the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you can. It's available to anybody. This isn't a a secret little club. Jesus opens his arms and he says, hey, I'm not going to reject anybody that comes to me. When they come with a heart of humility, a heart that's broken over their sin, a heart that needs saving, God will truly save you, even today, even this morning. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning for your spirit to work in the hearts of your people. And Lord, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that our salvation doesn't come from anyone or anything else other than you. As we learned last week and today, we know that that salvation comes through grace and gives us the peace that we have in you. And you want that peace multiplied to us in multiple ways. Father, we know that This grace and this kind of peace is not available to those outside of that saving faith. And so I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ and see you actively working in their life. So many times we hold on to an experience that we had years years ago, but if we were honest with ourselves, we'd say, you know what, I haven't seen God work in my life in in quite a while. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm kind of living the opposite as far as Christian, what would, might please God or what might please Christ. Don't you think he sees that? He knows that. He knows your heart needs to be changed. He's willing to give you a fresh start. He's extending his grace to you even now as you hear these words. I pray that your heart would yield itself to his call. you would be obedient to his call of salvation. Father, we pray for us as believers that you would remind us that we're all part of this in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all in need of your grace daily. As believers, we know that we've been saved by your glorious grace, that you've given to us a righteousness not of our own, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Father, we, we thank you for that and we pray for the power and the wisdom and, and the Spirit's leading as we go out into this sin-stained world and rub up against people who do not know you that we would be willing to share the glorious gospel, the life-saving gospel, the only gospel that can assure us of heaven with those around us, whether through our words, whether through our deeds, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you each and every day, that we would see you work in a fresh way in our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.